Thank you for listening to Gateway Church's Sermon of the Week. For more information about the ministry of Gateway Church and Pastor Chris Monahan, go to igateway.org. And materials, resources that we like to make available to you. Uh, this book is called Gatekeepers and Watchmen on the Wall, and this is based on the ten gates around Jerusalem. And uh, Sue helped me put this together. Actually, she took one of my courses and put it into writing. So um, this has been, this is just, if you want to understand what you're declaring and how you're praying, uh, this is a great, great starting book to have. And I just, I love the cover. I love the, uh, just the, the picture of what it represents that we stand in the gates and we are gatekeepers. So this is available. Um, these are 10 bucks a piece. Who, uh, who wants this book? Okay. I heard you first. Here you are, Donna. God bless you. God bless you. Let's give it up for Donna. All right. All right. So we're going to continue our talk on Revelation today. And uh, how many know that uh, we have a lot of different perspectives about what Revelation is, what, what the, the series is, and uh, a lot of different pictures of heaven. What's, <laughs> how many know there's a lot of perspectives we have about heaven that aren't real? And uh, if you need a bulletin, or you, this week actually the notes are included in the bulletin, you can go ahead and uh, use your camera and, you know, pull in all the notes. There's extra notes. There's some in your bulletin, but we just gave you everything. And we're putting the entire series into a course online. So if you want to go back and read some of, or learn some more about the book of Revelation, it's available. But let me start. This is a, a joke that President Ronald Reagan told back in the 80s. And he said this. He said, an evangelical minister and a politician arrived at heaven's gate one day together. And St. Peter after doing all the necessary formalities, took them in hand to show them where their quarters would be. And he took them to a small single room with a bed, a chair, and a table, and said, this is for the clergyman, this is for the minister. And the politician was a little worried about what might be in store for him. He couldn't believe when St. Peter stopped in front of a beautiful mansion with large, lovely grounds, many servants, and told him that this would be his quarters, the politician's quarters. Wow. And he couldn't help but he said, but wait, there's something wrong. How do I get this mansion while that good and holy man only gets a single room? And St. Peter said, you have to understand how things are up here. We get thousands and thousands of clergymen up here, but you're the first politician that ever made it. All right, come on, let's give it up, let's give it up, all right, all right. So today I want to take some time and reteach you about how things are going to end. Aren't you glad we're getting, we're landing this plane soon? We're going to talk about heaven today. We're going to talk about some perspectives that you might have about heaven that aren't correct. And so the first thing I want to tell you this morning is that you, none of us are going to heaven, okay? You can fill that in on your worksheet. That's a great way to start, start the sermon. You're not going to heaven. I mean, isn't that what we're all told? Like, you're going to heaven. Heaven is coming here. You're not going to heaven. Heaven is coming here. Heaven is a resource more than it's a destination. Okay, could you go to heaven? Yeah, you could go to heaven. But my point is, we've got to 
take heaven, stop seeing it as a place that we're going, and start seeing it as a place that's coming. We're praying your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm shifting your perspective a little bit this morning. Heaven is not just a destination. It's a resource for us to pull from. That's, that's where your resources are. And, and when we read Revelations 21, 20, uh, verse 2, and, it's, and this is John, and he says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So heaven is not a place, it's a person. His name is Jesus. Wherever Jesus is, is where heaven is. And notice that New Jerusalem is coming down from heaven and resting here on the planet. That's why we're going to see that there's a new heaven and a new earth. This morning, we will be partaking in communion together, but from a different perspective, based on a bride and her husband, based on a woman who has been just recently engaged to her groom. And we're going to take communion in a different way this morning. But I want to shift your perspective as heaven. We're just trying to get people to heaven when we should be trying to bring heaven here. Heaven comes when we release healing. Heaven comes when we see the miracles happen. Heaven comes when angels are released. And we need to stop thinking that this is a, we're going to leave planet Earth and it's just going to be, you know, taken over by the Antichrist. Instead, see, no, heaven is coming back, returning to the planet. That's what the book of Revelation says. The book of Revelation says there's that new heaven and a new earth. And the new Jerusalem is descending down, being established on earth. Number two, you're not going to get a mansion. What? You wanted a mansion, didn't you? You might get a mansion. And understand, I'm, this, don't take me too literally today. When I say you're not going to heaven, doesn't mean you're not going to heaven, but it, it, it's just a different perspective. Can you, are you with me today? Do I need to leave now? Do I need to put the microphone down and let somebody else take over? But the idea that you're getting a mansion is not biblical. We read this in John 14, but it, it's a mistranslation that I want to show you today. Revelations 21.3, we have the, the new heavens and new earth coming. The new Jerusalem's coming down. And notice it comes down like a bride. And who is the bride of Christ? We are. So it's a picture of, of the bride. The new Jerusalem is the bride. That you are a picture of a city. You are a picture of a bride. And you are a picture of the new Jerusalem. And it says this, and, and I heard, Revelations 21, 3, a loud voice from the throne. How many know heaven is a loud place? <laughs> Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So from the very beginning of time, God wanted to dwell with Adam and Eve, but because of sin, that they had to be banned from the garden, but Revelation ends in a city. So we go from a garden to a city, but God's purpose and plan is to dwell with us, to relate with us. 
that he will be our God and we will be his people. We are the bride of Christ. We are the new Jerusalem. And as I've done numerous funerals, you know, John 14 is a, is a funeral, is a oftentimes spoken at funerals. And you've heard this before, John 14, 1, it says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And this is the ASB translation. In my father's house are many mansions. Everybody say many mansions. If it were not so, I would not have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I come again and will receive you unto myself where I am. There ye uh, may be also. But the word mansion is not found in the original text. It's actually a mistranslation. The word mansion came from John 14 because the Latin word mansiones... <laughs> I guess that's what it sounds like a pizza place, doesn't it? We're going to eat at Mancioni's. Was translated simply written into English. It was not translated. So Mancioni's is a Latin word, has a primary meaning of staying, tarrying, or abiding, the same as Monet in Greek. So our assignment is not to go to God's dwelling place, but to become his dwelling place. You understand, like Jesus went to the cross, he rose from the dead. And he's going that we might be prepared so that God can dwell with us. So we need to see our perspective. We're not the widow of Christ. We're the bride of Christ. And we have some bride, like we have a bride in the house, a bride to be in the house this morning, right? It's exciting. There's excitement needs to be coming. We get to celebrate their wedding shower today. And I get to talk about brides to be. No bridezilla, brides to be, right? And it's a beautiful thing. But our perspective as believers, too many Christians look like they're the widow of Christ. We're not going to a funeral. We're going to a wedding. So we'll, we'll, we'll hash this out a little bit more. But it goes on to say that, that we are to become that dwelling. He's preparing you to be a dwelling place for God. You are a temple. It's preparing you for that. Revelations 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Death is such a powerful force. There was a, a person who used to be part of this congregation. Actually, we've had two deaths this week, but I did a funeral this week. Someone died in a motorcycle accident. and So when you study the scriptures, death is, death is a term that relates to strength. Because when you come against death, you lose. It's the strongest force on the planet next to the love of God. So there is a, and you know I love to, to define names and places. There's a, there's a name of a city that's called Az, Azmaeth. In the name, it's a name of a town, but also the name of several men in the Bible. Don't name your town Asmaveth. Doesn't sound very good. But it means to be strong as death. And it represents not a bad thing, but a good thing. It represents a strength that cannot be overcome. But remember that in Song of Songs, it says, for love is as strong as death. So there's a, a picture here. When we see death, it's final. It's unforgiving. But there's a, there's a greater force that needs to be in our hearts 
It's the love of God. And when we talk about the love of God, it's, it means we no longer fear death itself. As I was preparing this week, we talked last week how there'll be a, a first judgment where Jesus returns, and then there'll be a thousand years. Remember what that was called? The millennium. Remember the millennium? A thousand years. And it's a picture of working six days and resting one day. Work 6,000 years, rest on the seventh. When the Israelites went to collect manna, they used to go out and collect enough for one day, five days a week, but on the sixth day, they would collect twice as much so they would have enough for the Sabbath day. Follow me so far. But it's also a picture of what's going to happen on the sixth day, the last thousand years, is there is going to be a mighty harvest where we're going to collect twice as much on the thousand, the, the sixth day than we did on any other day. We can, how many know there's a great harvest among us? And we can expect the fish are hungry and people are ready to hear the gospel. This is the season of the local church, but we need to understand our position that we are his bride. Revelations 21.7 says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Do we have any conquerors in the house this morning? Come on, look at your neighbor and say, you're a conqueror. <laughs> you understand how important that is? And a lot of churches believe that it's by their beliefs that they're going to be applauded for, but it's actually by our courage that God awards us. I have seen so many people that have the right belief system, but they're cowards. What is the first definition of those found in hell is in Revelations 20, 21, 8. But as for the cowards, you understand, we got to be conquerors and not cowards. So you may think your belief system is what saves you, but if you truly believe what you do, you will have the courage to speak out your beliefs as well. We cannot be cowards. We cannot be faithless. None of these things. Now, we know that we trust in the blood of Jesus for our salvation, but it's time we recognize God's calling us to be conquerors. Okay, another disappointment. Not going to heaven. You don't get a mansion. This is a kind of a bummer sermon, isn't it? Just different perspective. You know, we read so much in between the lines that sometimes we don't read the lines. There's no pearly gates either. I'm sorry. There's sort of pearly gates, but Peter doesn't man them. So when we talk about the Peter's standing at the pearly gates, I might have heard of the pearly gates. Okay, there are pearls that are gates in heaven. There are streets of gold, but it's a little different than the perspective, like those bad jokes I told you at the beginning. Revelations 21.9 says, Then came one of the seven angels who had seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So you and I, as believers, and we are the bride of Jesus. Now, the nation of Israel is the wife of Yahweh. If you study the scriptures, we talked about this earlier. You can study this in the book of Isaiah. God sent Israel away. Yahweh sent Israel away with a certificate of divorce. 
That means that God himself is divorced. We are the bride of Christ, Yahweh's son. That's, that's the best understanding I can give it to you. But the picture of the end times is where there's this wedding feast where the bride of Christ marries the lamb. The lamb is Jesus. Don't you love this Im imagery? And it says, and he carried me away, Revelations 21.10, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Where is it resting? On earth. Heaven is coming. Where your feet are standing right now, where your feet are planted, this is going to be taken over by Jesus, the Son of God. That's good news. He's going to restore the planet back to its original purpose. And what was the original purpose when God placed Adam on this earth? He gave them authority, gave Adam and Eve authority to fill the earth, to conquer it and to rule and to multiply and to take back the planet from the devil who was here. But we failed to do that. But can I tell you, ultimately, that purpose will be fulfilled and the devil will be cast out of the earth and into the lake of fire. How many know that's good news? It's a, it's a pitiful future for him. But we get to participate in tearing down the plans of the devil here and now. Huh. So here we go, Revelations 21, 21, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold, transparent as glass. So we do have some pearly gates. Let's give it up for the pearly gates. We do have some streets of gold, okay? It's in the Bible. We're not making this up. It's in there. A little different than what we saw. So in this picture that we have, John is seeing a city. He's seeing a city, and he's seeing a temple, and he's seeing this city that was built, but it's also a picture of the book of Ezekiel as well. And there's a picture in the book of Ezekiel that many believe is similar to what is shown in John. There's many different stones. There's many different, uh, if you look into the Bible, the high priest would wear 12 stones on his chest. And there's mentioned in Revelation 21, very similar to the, to the stones. It's like a stone jacket. It's really cool. It's a, called a breastplate with 12 stones. And it's a picture that we see here in, you know, mega-sized in the city of Jerusalem. But why pearls? Why pearls? Why pearly gates? Wouldn't that be pretty cool? It's going to be cool to see this big pearly gate. It's this big pearl that we get to walk through. How many know that oysters produce pearls? Oysters that get a little piece of sand in them, and it irritates the, the oyster for a long period of time. It eventually turns into this beautiful thing called a pearl. So we call it beauty, beauty through irritation. And this is a picture of you and I as the bride of Christ. We get beautiful because we persevere through irritation. How many have some irritable things they're dealing with right in their life, right? Can you stay beautiful? 
through that period. But it's a pearly gate, and we have to persevere, and we have to know we're going through difficult times. We're going through terrible times, troubling times, but God's making us something beautiful. Like the, the name Megan or Margaret, those, those names actually mean pearl. And I always tell them when I'm prophesying to them according to your name that it's beauty, your <laughs> beauty through irritation. You're becoming beautiful. You have a high tolerance for what irritates you. How many need to get a higher tolerance to those things that irritate you sometimes? <laughs> right? That's called the fruit of the Spirit. I see the wives looking at their husband right now. Oh, help us, Jesus, right? But, but there's a picture that you and I are walking in the Spirit. Have you ever seen, I mean, all of us have seen an oyster. That's ugly. That's one of the ugliest things you could ever put in your mouth. Look at that thing. It's ugly. But it's a picture of our sinful life. And because Christ has come into our life, he changes us. Christ is like that piece of sand that irritates us, but causes us to become something beautiful. Come on, if you, when you read the Word of God, 10% of the time you say amen, and the other 90% of the time you say ouch. Because he's changing you. How many glad when you have Christ in you, there's this irritation that's happening because he's calling you up to a higher level because you're his bride. And we have to see ourselves as the bride of Christ. You know that if you marry someone that's an unbeliever, that's, that's a violation in the word of God. You should not be unequally yoked. And we're the bride of Christ. You think the father's going to choose a bride that's not equally yoked with him? So we have to let that thing, that, those things that Christ is calling us to overcome, those fleshly things in our life, we have to give them to him. Because we're to be a radiant, beautiful, spotless, everybody say spotless. spotless. Better than your car when it goes through the car wash. Spotless bride. That's what he's calling us. And we are the pearls. Because interestingly, the Jewish people don't eat oysters. It's, it's a forbidden food for them. It's biblically, it's not part of the biblical diet, but it's the very thing that comes from something unclean is turned into something beautiful. The last thing I want you to notice about Revelation 21, and we'll be ending up our series next week, Revelations 22, so Jesus can come back after next week so that we're done. He can come back anytime he wants. I'm kidding. Revelation 21. I don't know if you guys will come back next week. I took away your mansion. You took away going to heaven. I took away your pearly gates and Peter at the pearly gates. Gosh. But the last thing is getting in the heaven is not based on weighing between good and bad. Most people believe that if your good works outweigh your bad works, you'll get to go into the pearly gates, that you'll be able to enter in the heaven. That's a lie. The Bible is clear that we enter into heaven through the blood of Jesus Christ. Revelations 21, 22. It says that, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. When we come through Jesus, he is that place of sacrifice that we can come to the Father. You see, there's two powers in heaven. You'll see this 
And the next week, there's the throne of God. There's the throne of the Lamb. There's the Lord God Almighty, and there's the Lamb. There's Yahweh the Father, and there's Jesus, Yeshua, the Son, who is known throughout eternity as a Lamb. What was the picture of the Lamb to the, to the Jewish person? It was the Passover, the Passover Lamb. It was that blood of the Lamb that you put on the doorpost of your house that kept the devil out and welcomed Yahweh the Father, into your home. Jesus is known throughout eternity as the Lamb of God. So when Jesus says, no one comes to the Father but through me, what he's saying is that we have to walk through that sacrificial act of Jesus to get to the Father. And people who are not willing to give Jesus his rightful place as Lord receiving worship and honor and glory the same way as the Father receives honor, worship, and glory. That becomes a cult. And we have to see Jesus is honored. He's worshiped. If you don't go th through him, you can't enter in to the Father's love and dwell with the Father. You know, there's many people today, even Muslims will tell you, oh, we believe in Jesus. But what do you believe in Jesus as? A person? A prophet? A nice person? Or do you honor him and worship him in the same way you do the Father? This is, this is the difference. So believing, not just believing in something, someone, but what do you believe in them for? I always use this analogy. It's terrible. But here you go. Bob Dole ran for president a number of years ago. And there was all these signs, Dole for president, Dole for president. And then I'm driving to work one day, and I look over, and it says, Dole for pineapple. <laughs> they were still for Dole, but not for president. They were for Dole for pineapple. So you're for Jesus, but what are you for Jesus for? Great analogy, Pastor. You're welcome. We go through Jesus to get to the Father. It's only through his blood, his sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the sacrifice. Verse 23, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamb. Isn't that awesome? Jesus is the lamp throughout eternity. But he says, verse 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. I may have heard of the Lamb's book of life before. This is a document that I would highly suggest you get your name into. And it's Jesus' book. It's the Lamb's book. Now, I remember in college, you had, they would have frat parties. And if somebody invited you to come in, they would write your name down, and you come up to the frat house, and a, you would hope that your name was on the list. If it wasn't on the list, you couldn't come in. It's the same way in heaven with the Lamb's book of life. Your name has to be written in that book. And only the Lamb can write your name in that book. The problem is today is most people believe that if I just do more good works than bad works, St. Peter will let me in and by the pearly gates. And what we have to realize, 
if good works got us into heaven, then Jesus would never have had to be crucified. And if we're basing our salvation on the works that we do, then what happens is we are denying the power of the work that Jesus did. We're insulting the cross. So you have some churches and religions that they believe that it's by their good works that they attain heaven or paradise. But let me ask you, at what place is enough good works would allow you in? It's never our good works. It's the work. This is the work of God. Jesus said this. This is the work of God to believe in Jesus. That's your work. The only work you do to get saved is to believe in Jesus. And because we believe in Jesus, we live differently. We, we don't stay the same way we are because something on the inside is changing us. So we have people that still believe. I like to say that they have this, this picture of like scales in their eyes. They measure themselves. Am I, have I done more good than bad? And they base their righteousness upon if they do more good than bad that day or if they do enough good things. And can I tell you, that's like having scales over your eyes. We see this in Acts chapter 9, 18. How many remember this guy named, this rascal named Saul? Remember him? He was working for the Jewish high priest. He was killing Christians, throwing Christians in jail. And then one day, somebody came and shared the four laws with him. No. God knocked him off his horse. He had an encounter with God. Now, some people believe, oh, if you have some spiritual encounter, you're weird. You're strange. No, this is biblical. <laughs> Saul changed his theology after he was knocked off his horse. Some of you are going to have encounters that your theology is going to have to change. And Paul, who, well, Saul, who later became Paul, he had this encounter with Jesus. And what happened after this encounter, when he gave his life to the Lord, it says in Acts 9.18, and immediately something like scales, scales, everybody say scales. Scales fell from his eyes. That's what brought him to salvation. Now, in the Greek, it, it probably represents like fish scales, like the scales you strip off fish. Any fishermen here? Some you peel off the husk. But I like to twist this little word here. It's a picture of scales, someone who weighs their good and bad instead of trusting in the good, the work that Jesus did for their salvation. How many have some friends here that they need the scales to come off their eyes? It's not based on scales, friend. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done. This morning, we are going to partake at the end of service in our communion together. So I've left a little time for that. But I want you to see yourself as we, as, as we talk about the end times, your bride. That's your position right now. You are betrothed to the Lord. And if you don't understand some of the ancient Jewish wedding practices, we're going to miss out on what we're going through right now. And that's a picture of where we are today and when our groom returns. It's a picture of an ancient Jewish 
wedding ceremony. How many know that, that the first miracle that Jesus did was at a wedding? And what did he do? He turned, he turned water into Bud Light. Right? I mean, that's offensive. Jesus turned water into alcohol. Why would that be the, like, if I was writing the Bible, that's not the first miracle I would have Jesus do, right? Like, how's this going to work? Jesus, you turned water into wine. What? So it's a picture of a wedding, and wine represents joy in the scriptures, represents the joy of celebration. It represents a wedding feast. It represents a celebration. And that was the first miracle that Jesus did to point to the very last miracle that will happen here on the planet is when we celebrate with him of the celebratory wedding wine that we have with our groom. But salvation is like a wedding proposal. It's not just some death sentence that you've been let go of by a judge. We need to see salvation as a, as a wedding proposal that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, wants to marry you. That's his intention. And in ancient ceremonies, I'm going to take the next 10 minutes, and I'm going to go through this. But Revelation 19 said, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's what we're doing now, is we're making our self ready to be married to the Lamb. It's exciting times. So let me break down how a Jewish marriage customs would go down here. It first begins with this thing called the betrothal. Everybody say betrothal. That's an old word. It's kind of like an engagement, but it's a little different. A betrothal is when a young man desired to marry a young woman in ancient Israel, he would prepare a contract or covenant to present to the young woman and her father at the young woman's home. So he would bring this covenant, and he would place it before the father of the bride, and he would read it, and that would be the very beginning. This, this, it's a lot different than what we have today, but the bride always went through her father, and that the young man had to approach the father before he could get his bride. And there was something very significant and powerful. And one of the main things that had to be accepted was the bridal price. There were in that contract, and if you think about the covenant, what do we have today that was left behind for us was called the new covenant. This was like the marriage proposal. And we read that, remember what's expected of us, and then if it was appropriate, and if the bride agreed and the father agreed, and if the bride price was agreeable to the young woman's father, the young man would pour a glass of wine for the young woman. Communion. And so what we're going to do today is when we partake of this cup, we're basically saying yes to the groom. We're coming into agreement with the covenant 
that was placed before us because that's how the end happens. And if the young woman drank the wine, it would indicate her acceptance of the proposal. Once the bride sipped from the betrothal cup, and we're just going to call it this morning, the cup we drank this morning is going to be the betrothal cup. It was sealed. This happened in a ritual called Kiddushim. Kiddushim or Kadosh is the Hebrew word for holy. Holy means to be set apart. Remember, holy, if you call yourself holy, you're not saying, I do a lot of good things. Holy means you are set apart for God. Debbie is holy to me, and I am holy to her. That doesn't mean we're perfect. That mean, doesn't mean we do everything right. But she is set apart from me as my wife, and I am set apart for her as her husband. Holy to Debbie. I am holy to Debbie. So that's the picture. Thank you. I'm glad you're happy about that. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29. It says, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So there's a celebration that's coming in our future, but the most important part of the contract was the bride price, the price that the young man was willing to pay to marry the young woman. Remember that. There was a bridal pr price that would be laid down when the covenant was laid down. If this is accepted, what will the bridal price be? Now, sometimes I, I've shown here, I love to show this picture of the 10-cow wife. Have you ever heard of the 10-cow wife before? If you haven't, um, look it up on YouTube, 10-cow wife. And it's the ancient story of when this man wanted to purchase his bride on some island out in the, you know, Phoenician islands or something, and he brought eight cows to purchase his wife. He gave them to the father, and the father said, wow, I thought she was worth half a, half a sick cow, and here you are giving me eight cows. And, it, and then it shows what happens to this bride. Uh, she was very, you know, unkept and not hardworking and lazy and critical, and she felt like she was only worth half a cow by her own father, but when her groom came and said, you are worth eight cows, everyone's like, <gasps> and she was like, <gasps> whoa. And then they see what happens. Three months later, she comes back, and she looks like, you know, Miss America. And they're like, how come she looks like Miss America? Because someone was willing to pay eight cows for her. And once she got that into her heart, I'm an eight-cow wife. Woo. Right? And it's unfortunate, but most of us feel like we're worth half a sick cow instead of realizing what price was paid for us. And this is the part of the contract where Jesus says, I am willing to die, be crucified and nailed to a cross. That's my price I'm willing to pay for you. First Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price. That's the bridal price, is Jesus gave his life for you. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. All of us 
can now walk with confidence. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, laid down his life for us. That was the bridal price. And it's interesting because this betrothal is now legally binding. But what happens here is the groom goes away. He's no longer present. He goes away and prepares a place for his bride. So the betrothal was legally binding. She was bought with a price. From that point on, the bride would go about veiled to signal she was formally off the market. She would put a veil and cover her face. And so people knew now she, she has been bought with the price and she is veiled. What is the name of the book of Revelation? The apocalypto, the removing of the unveiled. Apocalypsis is not <laughs> the end time destruction of mankind. Apo means to lift, and calypto means to veil, hide, or cover. So Revelation, the book of Revelation, is defined as the lifting of the veil or the unveiling. So here you and I are today looking at this bridal covenant contract that was made. We now are veiled, but one day we will be unveiled. Last book of, the, of Revelation. We will be unveiled. Oftentimes, what the groom does at this point, the price is agreed to and the price is paid, but the groom also bestows gifts upon this bride to say, hey, look how much wealth you're going to be walking in. And what do we find? That Jesus himself, he gave us the gifts of the Spirit. What we see in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. There are gifts that he wants his bride to manifest here on this planet. Gifts of healing, gifts of power, doing the same works that Jesus did. That's some of the gifts we get when the contract is made. We are in the betrothal period now, you and I. And our groom has gone away, but he's coming back. And this is the picture we have. We see the gifts in Genesis 24 when Abraham's servant went out and discovered the bride for his son Isaac. It says, Then the servant brought out gold and silver jewelry and articles of clothing, and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave costly gifts to her brothers and the mother. So this, this is common, where there are gifts that are bestowed to this bridal contract, but even though it's not completely fulfilled. The bride has to live her life from that time forward like a married woman. We have to remain pure. We have to remain ready. We have to be prepared. Because our groom has gone away. And most people believe when the Father approves, there's a picture here that the groom then goes away and he's adding on to his father's tent or his father's house so that he can bring his bride back to be with her. 
And Jewish custom says that it's the father. He is the one that approves when the wedding can happen. And he does that by saying, okay, once the son builds the place for the bride and him to dwell, then the wedding can begin. Remember what Jesus said about the end times. He said, and I believe it's in Mark, I think we have the scripture here, that no man knows the day, or, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So the Father is the one that says to the Son, you're ready to get married. The, the house is ready. And then the groom can initiate the wedding ceremony. That's why the father knows. The son doesn't know, but the father knows. You with me? Then the party starts. Now, most ancient Jewish weddings occurred were spontaneous. No one knew they were going to happen. Now, we know Emily and Austin, they're getting married on October 15th at 4 o'clock. In ancient Jewish cultures, you wouldn't have that privilege. It would be spontaneous. You would be, one day, the, 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 the bride who was betrothed in this period, the bride would be at home, and all of a sudden, she'd look in the distance, and there's some light she sees, because weddings happened that night. And there'd be some music, and there'd be some lights in the distance. And they, then she had to be ready. She had to be ready when the groom came unexpectedly. Wouldn't that be exciting? Would you like that, Emily? Just, she's like, no. <laughs> you, couldn't be, you couldn't be in control of that one. But it's interesting because we see Matthew 25, it says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like the ten virgins who took their lamps and went to the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took oil with them. They took no oil with them, but the wise took flask of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there is not enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him in the marriage feast, and the door was shut. What we see happen so clearly here in this picture is that five were foolish. They didn't have enough oil because of the delay, but the five wise had enough oil. And I see this right now. We are in a season right now that we have to let go of some things that we need to let go of. We need to be prepared and ready. And what, are we, what we see with the foolish, foolish virgins who are part of the bridal party is they held back. They held back to their money, to their resources, instead of laying it down for the oil. You and I have to lay everything down now for the oil. And I love what they say, like nice Christians would say, hey, can we have some of your oil? No. Everybody say no. 
this is the season where we can't give people our oil. We've got to hold on to our oil. I need my oil. If, you don't, if you're not willing to lay everything down for your oil, you're not having mine. Thank you for listening to Gateway Church's Sermon of the Week. For more information about the ministry of Gateway Church and Pastor Chris Monahan, go to igateway.org. The Bible itself has over 40,000 names of persons, places, and what I've done is I've taken the 3,250 different names in the Bible and I've placed their meaning right next to the actual proper name in the scriptures. And it's called the Name Translation Bible. We look forward to you going deeper into the Word of God through the Name Translation Bible. God bless. In 2006, a small pantry began within Gateway Church, serving as a beacon of hope for those facing hunger. Fast forward to 2017, and this initiative had evolved into something remarkable. I'm Chris Monahan. I'm the pastor here at Gateway. Part of the reason we do the food pantry is to reach our community. We, uh, we want to give food away without strings attached and in a way that does not bring shame to people. We feel like it's vital that when we connect with people that it's on a very down-to-earth way. I make $750 a month. If it wasn't for your food pantry, I wouldn't eat. I think that the Gateway is a wonderful place. Without this place, a lot of people would go hungry and they give out so many different kinds of things. It's just, it's absolutely wonderful. I'm Linda White and I am part of the food pantry. I like doing this because we're giving people a hand up not a handout. We help, we help give them encouragement. Anything that needs to be done, we do. We just all work as a team. Hi, I'm Shelby Jones and I work with Gateway Food Pantry. The reason why I do this is because it's enjoyable, it's fun, and, uh, and it's a blessing to be able to By 2017, the Gateway Hunger Relief Center had emerged, expanding its mission and reach, becoming a vital hub for those in need. Even during the challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, the Hunger Relief Center never closed its doors, continuing its unwavering commitment to the community. Recognition came in 2021 when Gateway Hunger Relief was named Best Nonprofit of the Year by the Chamber of Commerce, a testament to their dedication. Fast forward to 2023, and Gateway Hunger Relief stands as the largest hunger relief center in Richmond, impacting countless lives. But it's not just about food. The senior program ensures monthly deliveries to our seniors. The Children's Bag Program fights child hunger with bi-weekly food bags. And our women's program provides essential products, recognizing the diverse needs of our community. Gateway Hunger Relief, a journey of compassion, growth, and making a difference in the lives of those we serve. We're called to the signs and the wonders and the miracles, but we're also called to love deeply and to make a significant difference in people's lives. We're called to move the needle in our region. And it's not just with the supernatural spiritual stuff,
But it's with some of the practical stuff that we can do. You know, a few months ago, I had, I don't want to call it a vision. I want to seem like I'm super spiritual, but I was just in time and prayer. And I began to, the Lord began to show me this, this river. And he showed me this river and, and, and I was on the shore of this river. And as, as I was looking up the river, here is floating down the river, people who are, are bruised and beaten, even some corpses. And, and, you know, we're calling people together and we're running into the river and we're dragging some people out. We're, we're giving them medical aid. We're, for others, we're just grieving with them and we're burying their bodies. And I know it's kind of odd, you know, and, and there's children, there's old people, and we're just running in and doing all this work. And, and we're getting exhausted, we're getting tired because the people keep floating down the river, injured, dead, maimed. And suddenly somebody says, we need to go up river and see what's happening and change the situation up river. Because we can focus on providing the needs and helping and we still will always do that but what if we make a journey up river we find out what's going on up river and destroy that evil work that's up river and so we are not just reaching out and helping those who have been hurt and wounded and killed but we're actually stopping the process You are flying on an airplane when you notice the plane is going the opposite direction than your destination. You begin to hear incoherent messages coming from the pilot. The plane begins to nosedive but then suddenly steadies. The crew smiles and acts like everything is normal, offering snacks and movie options as the plane flies into oblivion. A few people look concerned while others ignore reality and keep their headphones over their ears. You are convinced that the sudden jerks in the plane's movement are more than just turbulence. The pilot is putting every passenger and crew member in extreme danger because of his lack of competence. Then the man sitting next to you suddenly wakes up. You notice he is wearing a pilot's uniform under the blanket which covered him. He whispers to you, this plane has been hijacked by a senile man who has lost his mind. He has convinced the crew he is the legitimate pilot and has secretly drugged me and stolen my position. He looks at you and says, let's storm the cabin. What is your response? I think in the body of Christ is people do not separate these two powers. We, we have been taught that uh, Jesus and the Father are one. And Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Now, in Aramaic, if you look into the Aramaic, when you say you're one with someone, and Jesus spoke in Aramaic, I believe most of the uh, New Testament was written in the Aramaic language. It's, it's not a statement as a mathematical statement. It's actually a statement as saying that we're together, that the way I think is the way this person thinks. So to, to take the idea that the word one means is that 
they're they're no longer separate individuals is is a very uh not a good interpretation um, the first time that you'll find the word echad is mentioned in the bible echad is the the uh, famous word in deuteronomy 6 4 where uh, the famous the shema they would say shema israel adonai elohim adonai echad uh, hero israel the lord is god or yahweh is god yahweh is one and uh, for us to interpret that as God saying, hey, listen, I'm all by myself, there's no one else, is not, I believe, an accurate interpretation. It, I believe it, it, has the, it carries the idea of I'm a covenantal God. I'm a God that wants to bring you in to relationship. I'm a God of relationship. And we'll find that the first mention of this word echad is found in the book of Genesis when it refers to that the man and woman shall become one. They shall become echad. Now, when I talk about seeing two separate individuals, uh, I've been married for 32 years, and Debbie and I, uh, we became echad. We became one in covenant. But it's not okay that you call me Debbie now that we're one, okay? Or you don't go around and call my wife Chris. No, we're one, just like God is one. Jesus and God are one. Um, but we need to make sure we keep their individuality. Hi, I'm Rick Green, America's Constitution Coach. I'm actually in the room where the Constitution was framed and where the Declaration was created and signed. This is Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. You know, a lot of times you ask yourself, how do I become a good citizen? What do I do to live out my freedom in this amazing nation? How do I honor those who came before me that sacrificed for me to be able to have this freedom? And as a believer, how do I live out a biblical citizenship in modern America? Well, we're gonna walk through all of those questions. We got a lot of great people that are gonna comment on that. And I'm gonna teach you in this very room where the Constitution and the Declaration were created. I'm gonna teach you the founding documents of America and the biblical worldview that was sown into our nation from the very beginning. So join us on this incredible journey, biblical citizenship in modern America. allegiance to the flag of the United States of America 